Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. You know, we're a show that reports, rebels, and tells it just like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times, because on our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. That couldn't be more relevant for this episode and as we think about where we are in this country. Out of the studio, we're joined with special guests at the National Women's History Museum for an incredibly important episode that addresses reproductive health rights and justice from a historical point of view. But as we think about matters of history, as we go forward, for our future podcast. Thank you for sticking in with us as we had a little bit of a break over the summer. There's so much for us to think about in the coming election term, the 2022 midterm. So much to think about in light of the hearings on the storming and insurrection against the Capitol and our government. So much to think about in the wake of the post-Dobbs era in the United States where we've seen a 10-year-old girl fleeing the state of Ohio to get to Indiana in order to terminate a pregnancy after rape. As we've seen in the state of Wisconsin with a woman who bled for days, more than 10 days, with an incomplete miscarriage going near death before doctors could provide her the standard medical treatment. A woman in Louisiana who's forced to carry a pregnancy with a fetus developing without a skull. A girl in Florida being denied the opportunity to terminate her pregnancy by a judge who says that she's too immature to decide to have an abortion, but somehow mature enough to carry a pregnancy for nine months, risking her health and safety, and then becoming a mother before even graduating from high school. There's so much more in terms of this landscape that's now capturing our country. And so it is important that we think about history. It's important that we think about our future. And it's important for us to think about what comes next. What can we do to create the kind of future that we want for our country? I couldn't be more pleased than to be joined by very special guests for this out-of-studio special broadcast. I'm joined by Professor Mary Ziegler. You know her as one of the world's leading historians of the U.S. abortion debate. She is the author of Abortion and the Law in America, a legal history, and her new book couldn't be more timely, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. I'm also joined by Sarah Dibau, a professor of history at Williams College and author of the award-winning book, Ourselves Unborn, a history of the fetus in modern America. Also with us today is Deborah White. Professor White is the Board of Governors, Professor of History and Professor of Women and Gender Studies at Rutgers University. She's also the author of our entire woman, female slaves in the plantation South. Thank you for joining us for this special episode. Sit back and take a good listen. I want to start first by engaging with you, Professor Deborah White, and I hope it's okay that we can all be on first names for today's uh, show. 
Deborah, during your decades of work, you have studied the intersections of race and sex and gender. Your work has looked at the very origin story of Black women and their kidnap, sex trafficking, labor trafficking. And in fact, your, your book, Aren't I a Woman? Female Slaves in the Plantation South, such a powerful and important book with helping to level set I want to start first with a question that seems to have been overlooked in history, and that is how Black women navigated um, the sexual harms, assaults, and rapes um, that they encountered when being uh, kidnapped and brought to this new world. And what does that mean in terms of thinking about conversations of reproductive autonomy? That's a big one. Um, it certainly is. It, it's 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 a lot, and you know, and you're th one of the best people that I could find to start us off and answer that question. Yeah. So I know this is about um, this is about abortion rights, but it really is about bodily autonomy and who controls whose wounds. Um, from the very beginning, African American women was set apart from white women in this nation. And so that uh, black women, it, it basically, at the very beginning in 1662, there is a law that um, it says that the child follows the condition of the mother. And in as much as the, issues of slavery and race had not really been worked out and they were being worked out. Um, you, could, you could actually see the progression of how African-American women uh, and the control of African-American African -American women's wombs really was that that was that was going to be how whether or not slavery was even going to survive all right so the very beginning of this nation's history um the british in particular they they said they decided that the child would follow the condition of the mother and that meant that i mean that that you know in in britain the child followed uh you know based on inheritance rules. The status of the father. The status of the father. And so what they were saying was that it was really, um, if the woman was a slave. Her children would be slaves. I would be slave. And if the um, woman was free, then the child would be free. So if you're setting up a system of slavery based on color, you want to make sure that the babies that black women have are black and or brown, but they are of color. And that the children that white women have are of, that they are white. So if you look at the, the very founding laws of this country, you find that, you know, there was, there was, there was an attempt to control African-American and white women's so I, I want to build upon that because what you're opening the door to are other matters as well. So very recently, just a couple years ago, reported in the New York Times and other uh, media, 
was a study done by 23andMe along with um, myriad other researchers to study the DNA of Black people. And what they found were incredibly high links to white male genetics, part of that historic story of slavery. And it seems to me that that connects with what it is that you are saying, because if children will inherit the status of their mothers, then that means that Black women are um, increasingly vulnerable to what would be these kind of perverse incentives. If you want more enslaved people on your plantation, then you force this Black woman to reproduce. And it also then means that if you're white, you don't have to worry about that child claiming some inheritance for, of, you know, from your estate or your property, because that child is the status of that woman. In fact, Black women were considered property, that property that birthed it. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, that that was the, the thought and that was the desire, but it doesn't it never worked out that way. Obviously, white women had children with black men. And so some of their children were brown and that um, and the children of uh, some brown children, particularly some women were the children of white mothers. But I mean, in uh, in theory, if you could control who, uh, who had, you know, what the, the, the race or the color of the children that were born, then you could, con you could essentially control how slavery would proceed. But it never, it was, it was always very, very, very messy. So mm -hmm. in some of the very early laws of this nation, you had white women being penalized for having children that were brown. Well, and, it is messy, and isn't fine. it? And they were fined and there were sometimes they were put in jail and there were all, all kinds of laws. Um, I think the bottom line really is that children carry in some, in some people's ideas and some people's ideology, in fact, children carry the nation and mm. the way the nation is the way that women's, uh, you know, uh, is determined by the children that come out of women's wombs. And therefore, it's been very important to control who marries who. And it's been very important to control who has sex. It, I mean, so the issues of sexual integrity and the issues of reproduction are all tied up together and issues of with net with issues sure. of nationalism well you know it also strikes me too by what you're saying is the hypo descent rules you know otherwise known as the one drop rule uh which otherwise colors no pun intended exactly what it is that that you're saying here yes and then the anti-miscegenation rules as well in terms of who can marry whom, I mean, which existed and persisted long beyond slavery's abolition, uh, long deep beyond Jim Crow. I mean, 1967 is when the Supreme Court finally strikes down anti-miscegenation laws. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, and, uh, and we're gonna come back to this. I'm gonna turn to Sarah uh, for a moment here, 
But what strikes me is, is being very interesting about 1967 with the Supreme Court finally striking down anti-miscegenation laws is that it wasn't as if this was uh, with path resistance from the state Virginia. This, the case was Loving v. Virginia. Virginia came kind of with full force defending its laws, wanting to persist into the late 1960s, early 70s with anti-miscegenation on the books. It's fascinating. And to your point, one of the ways in which they defend the laws to say that they're protecting children, they're protecting future offspring. So fascinating. Well, you know, Sarah, I'm so happy that you're joining us for this very important dialogue and conversation. Interestingly, you too have roots at Rutgers as well, um, which is really terrific. Rutgers has really just been showing such mightiness across these spaces. Some of our viewers and listeners will know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she was Justice Ginsburg, taught at Rutgers. And so what a fascinating history uh, and present at Rutgers. So you've taught at a number of places and your work examines the intersections of gender, law and politics in the 20th century. Um, and your book, Ourselves Unborn, A History of the Fetus in Modern America, just an incredible page turner. And highly, I highly recommend it to uh, anyone who's considering um, learning more, wanting to know more in this space. So how do we build upon this history that Deborah just started us off with? I know with your work, it covers this space before Roe v. Wade. What is the lead up? How do we further contextualize uh, exactly what the concerns were mm -hmm. with regard to reproductive health rights justice, if you can, uh, before Roe? Thanks. Um, I'm really glad that we began this conversation with Deborah's longer history and context, because I think it's really impossible to sort of separate the story of the history of reproductive politics, reproductive justice, abortion politics, from the history of slavery, of race, um, of controlling women's bodies, controlling Black women's bodies in particular ways. And that history is really completely absent from the Dobbs decision's uh, majority opinion. And I know that we're not just here to talk about Dobbs, but I did want to sort of start. Oh, <laughs> please start. I mean, because that would talk about a hot mess, you know, opportunistic readings of history, you know, mm -hmm. hopscotch uh, around history. I mean, it, it was an unfortunate just in terms of the quality of the uh, of the the research and the quality of analysis was was really far short in, in that opinion. Yeah, and I think um, at the same time it was so committed to framing itself as a historical analysis. So I think that the decision really, I mean, I think it cites the word history sort of 67 times at least. And, you know, the conclusion is sort of that he says, um, you know, there's this unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment um, from the earliest days of common law through 1970. Which is, which is an error. It's an it's error. False. <laughs> an error. It's, that's a polite way of saying it, right, Sarah? It is an error. <laughs> it's an error. It's in um, contradistinction to sort of the consensus view of most historians. And so I thought it might be helpful to just sort of lay out what that consensus view is. I think that that's, I think that's a great place to to begin 
And, and as you do, I think it's worth noting that to the extent that Justice Alito frames himself as an originalist and textualist, and people, you know, and, and says, well, abortion's not mentioned in the Constitution. It's worth noting that pregnancy isn't mentioned in the Constitution. <laughs> Labor and delivery aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Um, that there are things that are just so normalized in terms of human existence mm-hmm. that weren't mentioned in the Constitution, you know, suggesting that labor, pregnancy, or abortion should be mentioned in the Constitution is as if saying male erection should be listed in the Constitution. And, and I'm not being sloppy or, or, or humorous with that, but it is just that, you know, why exactly the sort of examination of the woman's body in the Constitution and not a man's body in a document that was written by and for men largely? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, the narrowness of it is a choice, right? I mean, so the the premise of the decision is to sort of look at these written laws um, that were passed around the time of um, the 14th Amendment's ratification and to sort of say, look, there's all of these state laws are criminalizing abortion. And there's some degree of truth to that, that in the late 19th century, there were a series of laws that were passed in the states that were picking up on common law um, and codifying it and criminalizing abortion and statutes. And a lot of those laws um, were motivated. I mean, I think the motivation behind those laws is also really important to think about, actually. Oh, sure, Sarah, because we know what those motivations (laughs) were. Those were laws that came up in the wake of the demise of slavery. Yeah, so um, they came up in the wake of the demise of slavery. The 14th Amendment is passed. It, I mean, I guess it goes without saying, although I'll say it. Um, you know, it's the laws say that are being it, codified. Say it, Sarah, say it. <laughs> the laws that are being codified are, you know, written by white men. They're being ratified in legislatures where women are not voting, where Black women are not voting, where many Black men at this point in time are not voting. Um, and so, you know, to pick that moment. And just noting not voting because they can't vote, right? Like not voting because, oh, you're just so apathetic and you're just not exercising your right to vote, right? Correct. Correct. I mean, so women cannot vote and there's a lot of violence and voter suppression um, following the 15th Amendment that makes it extremely dangerous for Black men to vote. Uh, and so those laws are passed, and those laws also do retain, though, some distinctions between um, stages in pregnancy, and they um, impose different penalties depending on the stage of pregnancy. Um, and when you look at the actual implementation of those laws, you actually see that there's a big gap between how those laws are written and how those laws are interpreted by juries, for example. I mean, first of all, very few cases are actually ever prosecuted at that time. Um, but also when juries decide, they often um, don't uphold those laws and they find that there's not um, a crime actually being committed that they want to punish. And at the same time, there's also the motive behind the laws, which is driven. I mean, there are a couple of reasons for it and we can sort of flesh them out. But they were led by a doctor named Horatio Storer, was one of the leading. Um, Absolutely. Horatio Storer and Joseph DeLee. I mean, you know, they yeah. write about how urgent it is that white women use their loins and go yeah. east, north, south, and west. It kind of reminds yeah. me of the contemporary rhetoric that we hear from the kind of self-described white nationalist and white yeah. Christian nationalists who are concerned about replacement and the whole replacement theory, this idea that mm-hmm. uh, as soon as Black people are freed from the chains and bowels of slavery, that somehow uh, mm-hmm. they'll just darken 
uh, the United States and white people will be replaced. I mean, it's a huge anxiety for these people um, who are passing the laws and Alito acknowledges it and he says, but really, like, we don't know what they really meant. I mean, they were telling us what they really they, meant. They were writing it. Horatio Stork couldn't have right. been more. The thing that I find fascinating, Sarah, and I'm just loving this conversation. The thing that I find fascinating is the misreading, rereading of the explicit things that people wrote, right? right. This is what they wrote, exactly these things. So one can't say, well, we don't know what they really meant. They couldn't have been more explicit mm -hmm. in their sexism, racism, misogyny, and their concerns. Mm -hmm. And then the polit politicking that they did around them. Yeah. And when you read the legislative histories debating passing these laws, they quote Storer and Dilley and all of these people. So it's, I mean, it's foundational um, to the motivation behind it. And as well, you know, also motivated by sort of taking control of reproduction away from midwives, from healers, from, from women. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that too, because as part of this lead up, they're, they're doing kind of double or triple duty. So mm -hmm. you have these kind of new men of medicine who feel deeply insecure, again, coming from their writing, because mm -hmm. there are the other men of medicine, the anatomist and, you know, the, the surgeons, and the surgeons are telling them that you're just doing women's work which mm -hmm. is actually not surprising because it was women who were doing this work. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and then, you know, in the, in their pamphlets and books that they write, they write then about their insecurities and how they deserve greater recognition. Mm -hmm. And they begin these campaigns against midwives. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that campaign is also is sort of to demonize what they do mm -hmm. and how they do, even though midwives are far more successful than they are actually with keeping women alive mm -hmm. <laughs> during pregnancy and, and after delivery. Deborah, you look like you might've wanted to jump in there. No, I'm just saying, I'm just uh, enjoying this as well, but correct. Uh, uh, most women gave birth via uh, the help of a, of a midwife. And this is in rural and even in, ur in urban settings. And so, um, you find a lot of the issues regarding abortion and the control of women's bodies wound up in the history of, of medicine and the history mm -hmm. of the professionalization of the uh, MD profession. That's right, of obstetrics and gynecology. I mean, this is this becomes a tool for monopolization of the field. I mean, it's an interesting kind of horrific storm that comes together, right, with mm -hmm. the sort of anti- uh, slavery movement, the abolitionist movement really beginning to take a foothold at the same time, the professionalization of obstetrics and gynecology, which has a very white male face, even though historically for millennia, it's always been women, right? Like, you know, if we pause, when we think about it, there are no white guys with lab coats and stuff. But if we also, you know, it, let's remember that- Roaming around the fields of Africa, plains of Africa, plains of Europe or anywhere else. Remember that the history of gynecology, ahead, the, the history of gynecology is really tied up again with the uh, right or the absence of black women's autonomy, bodily autonomy, because on so many of the, the experimentations that were carried on and that led to so many uh, cesarean sections, for example, as well as, as, as all kinds of other kinds of surgical repairs of women's wombs were done on African-American women. Marion J. Sims notoriously used enslaved women who had, who could, who, who could not protest. 
because their bodies were literally owned by someone else who, and they were virtually given to Mary and Jason so that he could experiment on African-American women. Well, you know, it's interesting too, because as we think about being together today with the National Women's History Museum and on the landing page of the museum's website, it speaks to empathy, historical empathy for women and the stories of women. And Deborah, I'm so pleased that that you brought Marion Sims into the conversation, because again, it's a matter of what it is that we see. Marion Sims wrote in his own autobiography about doing exactly that, about denying these enslaved Black women anesthesia. He wrote about having what he called epiphanies in the middle of the night, where he would snatch them from the degraded circumstances in which he kept them, I won't even say housed them, and then would begin cutting into their bodies. And what's, what's so important about this conversation and the National Women's History Museum facilitating this and, and with our Ms. audience with this too, is that it's a matter of like, what is it that we see? He was honored with statutes, put it, you know, statutes in Central Park and other places, you know, lauded as the father of gynecology. And yet I think if we read, as I read, <laughs> humanity inflicted upon these women. And so I think it says a lot about who gets to read and interpret um, history. So, so Sarah, I want to build on this to add in then the layers. So that's where, you know, the sort of 19th century story, 18th, uh, 1800s, that this criminalization begins in the wake of slavery's abolition. It doesn't start with the Pilgrims landing uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, and building colonies, you know, indigenous people are performing abortions and so forth. The Pilgrims are and, and so forth. But it, Benjamin Franklin writes about how to perform an abortion, right? So this becomes mm -hmm. part of this strategy that's largely used by these new men of medicine, these new gynecologists and obst obstetricians who also want to keep women out because that's also another fascinating story. Maybe when we come back for mm -hmm. another uh, episode, we could actually talk about what it would have meant if women could have been included in mm -hmm. obstetrics and gynecology, given mm -hmm. all of that kind of history, millennia of history and experience that they had. But that's for another episode. But Comstock, how do we, you know, get into the, you know, 20th century story? Mm -hmm. Well, so Comstock is a law, it's passed in 1873, which is a law criminalizing the sale and um, mailing of information about contraception and abortion. And I think it's important too, to see that these issues are always linked, abortion and contraception. And they're linked today as well, which maybe we can talk a little bit about. Um, and so there's both the federal criminalization and then there's the state level. And so there is this sort of, there is sort of this hundred year period from the late 1870s to 1973 of sort of when abortion was a crime of, of the criminalization of it. And during that era, um, you know, people still had abortions. Um, people still needed abortions and got them and got them less safely. Um, and there was sort of um, a series of of um, different levels of enforcement. And so there would be periods of time when um, there would, it would be highly criminalized and enforced and periods of time when it would not. And in the, you know, it was mostly controlled in hospitals um, through hospital boards who would 
often decide whether or not a woman could get an abortion if there was a medical necessity for her life. And those hospital boards um, would be, you know, so you would have to sort of leave your fate up to the hands of this board of doctors who would decide. Um, right, male doctors, right? So it's so it fascinating to look at the kind of face of, of what all mm -hmm. of this uh, looks like, you know, have go from about 100% of women's reproductive health care being done by women, mm -hmm. including about half of that, uh, black women, indigenous women and white women, to by the turn of the 20th century, they're almost fully excluded about 1% mm -hmm. of reproductive health care than is done by women um, mm -hmm. in the early 20th century. So, so Mary, we're sort of leading that conversation then. Thank you so much, Deborah, up to that point of Roe v. Wade. And Roe, on one hand, is an incredible new day. It is a seven to two opinion. Five of those seven justices are Republican appointed. Justice Blackman, who writes the opinion in Roe, was put on the court by Richard Nixon. You got Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, as the treasurer at Planned Parenthood. So, Mary, what happened? Right? Like That's the 1973 story. Uh, for many people, that's looking like a fairly decent story. Um, you know, it's, it's a, we see in the wake of that, there's been a civil rights movement. Um, a women's rights movement, and maybe this is a, a time in which there's a real transition in our country. But you've been writing about, Mary, how we need to be far more critical about what was happening during that time and leading up to Dobbs. Can you paint that picture for us? Sure, yeah. So I think, I mean, if you read Dobbs, you would think the anti-abortion movement kind of sprang into being upon the release of the Roe v. Wade decision, which is wrong. Um, Sarah and others have written about this convincingly. There was an anti-abortion movement, obviously in the 19th century with Storer, but the kind of incarnation of what would look more like the contemporary anti-abortion movement um, in the 1960s, really as soon as states began trying to reform criminal laws on abortion. So there was a kind of rejection of, of any idea of compromise. For example, New Hampshire was one of the few states that didn't have an exception for the life of a pregnant person. And when the state moved to put in that exception in the early 1960s, anti-abortion leaders rejected that. So there was already a kind of compromise refusing, initially um, predominantly white, predominantly middle-class, predominantly Catholic movement. Um, but I think, you know, in the, in, in, that lasted after Roe as well, right? So this, this rejection of compromise and the elevation of what we would now view as fetal personhood, right? The idea that a fetus is a rights holding person under the constitution and that therefore abortion is unconstitutional period everywhere was what the anti-abortion movement embraced in the immediate aftermath of Roe and really honestly ever since. But the movement also got to be more savvy and recognized, you know, one that most people didn't want fetal personhood. Most people didn't want an abortion ban. The Supreme Court wasn't interested in either an abortion ban or fetal personhood. So they began a kind of strategy we, we now call incrementalism, right? The idea of passing restrictions that would make abortion broadly inaccessible, particularly for people of color um, and people without a lot of income, but other people as well. Um, the Hyde Amendment, which some people listening may have heard of, which banned Medicaid reimbursement for abortion was probably the most successful of these initiatives. They 
um, also began uh, passing laws that were designed in their words to chip away at Roe. The idea would be that um, not only would abortion be inaccessible, but the very idea of an abortion right would become kind of incoherent, right? So you'd say, oh, yay, there's an abortion right, but no one can actually have an abortion, and that that would erode support um, in the judiciary as Such well that as it would become the, more illusory than real you know one exactly. point that because we've got lots to talk about and and really having this conversation just makes me think that we need to have episode one two three <laughs> four and five of this but you know mary one of the things that um i think is important to level set about is that there is a kind of rhetoric that this has always been um a Republican position, because most of the opposition mm -hmm. that one sees right now is Republican, but that's actually not true, right? right? So yeah. it, it really, it wasn't always a Republican position. And can you speak just briefly to that? Because I think that it it matters in talking about history and it matters in terms of talking about clarity. And, and I will also say, I think that it matters for those who are wondering if this should be, you know, a way in which they think about things because they've heard this is how things always have been. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, abortion was definitely not a party partisan issue um, prior to really in a kind of coherent, consistent way until the early until the early eighties, right? So, if you had asked sort of a list of very prominent supporters of abortion rights in this, the late sixties or early seventies, you would have come up with Nelson Rockefeller, who was, of course. Gerald Ford's vice president and the governor of New York. He was a Republican. If you had asked for a very prominent list of pro-life or anti-abortion um, politicians, you would have come up with Thomas Eagleton, who was um, a prominent senator and the running mate of George McGovern in 1972. So there was no real partisan alignment that was coherent. And even after Roe, that didn't happen immediately. Um, both, I think, Jimmy Ford, Carter and Gerald Ford sort of ran away from the abortion issue rather than toward it. Um, Ford staked out a position on abortion that really made nobody happy, like the pro-choice movement or the anti-abortion movement. The same with Carter. Um, and so it really wasn't until the 1980s when there was a kind of perfect storm of things that helped to forge abortion as a partisan issue. Um, I think there was a partisan opportunity realized by Ronald Reagan and some other staffers, the idea being in particular that um, socially conservative Catholics and white evangelicals who had not really voted consistently for one way or another, or one party or another, rather, were kind of gettable. Um, there was an effort at the time, a parallel effort to organize conservative white evangelicals in the Sun Belt in particular, so across the South and Southwest. Kind of um, like Jesse Helms territory. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and there was also, you know, because people were actually moving to the Sun Belt, there was kind of a block that would be regionally important, right? So this was compelling not only to Reagan, but to people in state legislatures and so on who could imagine like a regional power block. Um, it's important to remember that this was not just about abortion, right? Abortion was the sort of gender and race issue you could do something about, right? So people mm -hmm. in this block that people were organizing were upset about no-fault divorce. They were upset about the rise of the early gay and lesbian rights movement. They were upset about the women's movement and the idea of amending the constitution to prohibit sex discrimination. They were upset about desegregation, but you know, abortion, it was easier for Reagan to make the case, look, if you elect Republicans, either one, we're going to amend the Constitution to ban abortion, and two, in the meantime, if we can't do that, we're going to give you a different well, well, you know, Mary, I'm so happy that uh, you've that that you've opened the door for that. And, and I'm so enthused by this conversation, because Deborah, it makes me think about the sort of complexity, the kind of race complexity that was being done by Reagan, 
who goes to Mississippi of all places, right? I mean, you think a governor from California, why in the world are you going to Philadelphia, Mississippi uh, to help launch your campaign, right? You might think, well, you know, get to the East Coast. You might think do Texas, right? But it strikes me that Philadelphia, Mississippi is most known for the tragic, brutal killings, right? Of Emmett Till. You know, and, and Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner too, yeah, right? Like these, yes, these, yes. these these civil rights, these young people. And, right. and from that stage to then talk about the welfare queen. So Mary, as you were talking about, right, that there are a, this kind of coalescing around ideas and race being central. Well, part of what folks don't think about with Reagan is the sort of welfare queen mythology also baked into that. Deborah, mm -hmm. it, could, could you just share just a little bit about what that meant in terms of race and sex, you know, the sort of labeling of black women as bad mothers and also draining our economy. Basically, African-American women then become associated with I, not only are they bad mothers, but they are taking t uh, tax dollars away from from, you know, hard working, white working class, middle class people. And so. Um, Black women then are set up as the boogeyman. And if you can, if you do something about their, their pregnancy rates, and because we're putting, we're putting so much money into, into the welfare of, of, of these children who are being reproduced just uncontrollably. Here's, here's what, the, what I see as the real issue or one of the real issues, and particularly if we turn to the feminist movement that should have somehow been able to deal with this, this as far as, in, um, as, as they were organized. African-American women have, have been concerned with two things. Bodily autonomy, the control over my body, and sexual integrity. And, and as far as Black women are concerned, having control over one's body and one's and reproductive rights not only meant the right to a, an abortion, but the right to have children. Because throughout the 1920s, I know we're, 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 we're rushing through history here, but, and we have to because we- you No, know, we have to, because otherwise we keep people, you we, know, what, for, for a couple of days, I'd be happy going. to. <laughs> but when you think about the history of sterilization, when you think about Norplant and how, um, and you think about the whole history, unfortunately, of the birth control movement, originally, it was concerned with eugenics and the right kind of babies to have, the best kind of babies to have. And in that case, throughout the 1920s and 30s and 40s, so often it was black women who were being sterilized against their will. They would go into a clinic and even if, if a black woman, even, even through the 1970s and the 1960s, sometimes if they wanted an abortion, they'd not only just get an abortion, but they'd have their tubes done. Unbeknownst to them, black women who wanted to, um, who were brought in on some criminal charge, and okay, we'll give you, uh, we will give you time off, but you have to, you, you can't have any more babies. Um, black women have always been concerned with, uh, can I control my body? And if I want to have an abortion, I want to have an abortion. If I want to have 
children. I want to have children free of poverty. I want to be able to have the children that I can afford to have. And unfortunately, unfortunately, throughout the 19 the late 1960s and 1970s, the feminist movement defined uh, abortion only in terms, or mostly, let's put it this way, mostly in terms of, you know, um, of, of, of women's freedom and women's mm-hmm. right, which it should have been. But they left out uh, so many black and brown and uh, women who, really wanted to wanted to have children who sure. had not been able to have children who had had their tubes tied who had been declared feeble minded sure. and therefore were not allowed to reproduce and so sarah i see that you want to jump in there and i think that that's really important because you know histories of sterilization coercive forced sterilization imposed against indigenous women women in Puerto Rico and more. And then Mary, I'm going to come back to you because the story hasn't been fully told in terms of what that resistance looked like uh, post Roe v. Wade and the series of cases that upheld the Hyde Amendment and and Helms too. But but Sarah, you wanted to, to interject there. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to just build on what Deborah was saying, which is, just, I mean, there's sort of been this um, artifact of history in that we're, we've been defending Roe for 50 years and Roe is matters, but it was never enough. It was not um, a there North were, Star. There were alternative arguments and visions being articulated even at the time of Roe, even in the courts that did not, for a whole variety of reasons we can talk about, become the cases that the Supreme Court heard um, mm-hmm. in 73. And so there's this sort of paradox that we've lost this history of arguments for reproductive justice, reproductive freedom, that includes you know, the whole array of choices about how to control your body and, and, and have a family. Um, and so that history has kind of been mm-hmm. lost as well, I think. Sure. I mean, well, that's a, mainstream narratives about it. And so Roe that, was never enough, but it's the loss of it also is something. So that's a, a terrific point that that you raise because Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an attorney. Uh, had hoped that the case that would reach the Supreme Court was the case of Captain Kathy Strzok, Mm -hmm. uh, who was being forced by the military to have an abortion if she wanted to remain as a captain in the military. Mm -hmm. And she fought uh, the military's designation that that she should, must have an abortion if she were to stay, uh, including at the Ninth Circuit. Mm-hmm. And it was this case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had hoped that the Supreme Court would actually have taken up on the question of sex equality, reproductive equality, freedom, um, et cetera, because uh, as many people don't know, to your point, Sarah, is that abortions were taking place in the U.S. military before Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were being forced, women were being forced to have them if they wanted to be able to stay in the military. There's so many of those stories, but Mm -hmm. but Mary, I'm going to turn back to you because in your work, you've also written about how the anti-abortion movement, which also had some pretty violent aspects to it, the least of which were individuals chaining themselves to clinics that performed abortions. But between 1973 
Uh, and just a few years ago, there are nearly 50 bombings of abortion clinics in the United States, uh, arsons or doctors and nurses who've been gunned down. And so you you write about that that as being one aspect of what we've seen in the anti-abortion movement, but the shift to a political discourse, one that was a more sophisticated kind of investment in the movement to get further. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think over time, um, I mean, obviously the anti-abortion movement has lots of different moving parts um, and we still see that now. Um, there still is lots of law breaking, um, but there's also, I think, you know, if you're looking at how Dobbs came about, um, it's safe to assume that that was mostly not due to the murder of abortion doctors. That was mostly attributable to some of the more strategic, least sophisticated parts of the movement. And I think what was crucial there was in the 90s, leaders of the movement began realizing that this strategy I'd laid out to kind of chip away at abortion rights was not enough, in part because Supreme Court justices and Republican politicians alike were really anxious about the political fallout they expected to see if Roe were over, was overturned. And that's in part because they had seen the polling we've all seen then and since suggesting that most Americans did not want Roe to be overturned and did not want abortion bans, which is what the movement in fact was arguing for. So instead of just investing in changing dialogue around abortion, the movement began investing in changing how institutions work. So the Supreme Court was already part of that story. The, the movement had tried to get Republicans elected to get folks the Republicans wanted on the court. But they then realized that wasn't enough. You needed to get justices who were not only conservative, but essentially indifferent to backlash, right? Indifferent to the kind of fallout you would see in the aftermath of the demise of abortion rights. Um, they saw uh, Clarence Thomas as the sort of paradigm of this, right? Not because um, of Thomas's race, but because of the, the accusations raised by Anita Hill and the response of Thomas to them, which is essentially defiance. So they took this as a proxy. If Clarence Thomas didn't care about the kind of scrutiny he came under after being accused of sexual harassment, the theory was he wouldn't care about the kind of scrutiny he would face when Roe was overturned too, right? So that became the new blueprint. Um, at the same time, the movement began looking for ways to exercise more control over the Republican Party that had not really been working very well. Um, through the 90s. One of the ways the movement tried to do that was by um, influencing money in politics, right, on the theory that if the anti-abortion movement spent more, it could purchase more influence in the GOP, could help more Republicans get elected, um, and could kind of endear the movement to the GOP at a time when Republicans thought it may be bad politics to oppose abortion. So you then see a connection, not only between the Republican Party and the anti-abortion movement, but between the anti-abortion movement and, you know, big money in politics, right? So the same people are working as the general counsel of the National Right to Life Committee, which is a large national anti-abortion group and litigating Citizens United or presiding over the creation of super PACs. Um, so all of that is happening in a way that kind of leads us to a moment where Dobbs is possible only because the politics of the Republican Party have changed so much since the 80s, really even, I would say, since the 20, 2010, mm -hmm. um, right. and the court has as well. Right. Well, it's interesting because that gets us back in many ways to, to examining how and why. So what happens in 2010? Who's in office at, in 2010? What's the kind of pushback that's, that's taking place? We know it's Barack Obama that's in office. Um, there are reporters who today are saying that at the time they thought that this 
was just a matter of political pushback, but now they understand the threads of racism um, that existed while Barack Obama was in office and that the uh, framing of the United States as being post-racial certainly has not panned out, especially in the wake of the massacre in Charlottesville with the death of Heather Heyer and what we've seen in terms of a truly weaponized uh, movement, a white supremacist movement in the United States. Well, this is a time in which uh, we have some audience questions to get to something that we usually don't have uh, with our On the Issues podcast, but is the benefit of being able to collaborate with the National Women's History Museum and uh, to celebrate how long uh, they've been doing incredible work. And so uh, I am going to start off with one of the questions that's in the queue, and then I'm going to invite Emma uh, to join us as we take a couple of additional questions before we wrap up, because time has gone by really quickly. So there is um, there is the concern that's been raised that's, that's in the uh, Q&A about um the federalist society and the way in which it's been able to uh, galvanize itself and to influence uh of the american political space um the judicial space um mary i will start with you first in terms of addressing that and then open it to other um guests sure yeah i think um, the Federalist Society has a really interesting relationship with the anti-abortion movement. If you go to the 80s, it was a not entirely happy relationship, right? There were people in the Federalist Society who were sort of like, hey, we're... So the Federalist Society in a nutshell, right, was trying to create a parallel legal elite because the legal elite for decades, broadly speaking, was progressive. And there was an intuition that the Federalist Society leaders had that as long as that was true, you would continue to get fairly moderate decisions from the Supreme Court. And Roe is a perfect example of that. You had a bunch of Republican justices recognizing a right to abortion. Um, so their theory was that you needed to create a parallel elite that could be a source of nominees for the, to the federal bench, a parallel kind of legal network of, for, of professional advancement in law schools and otherwise. Um, initially, being opposed to abortion didn't really fit in very well with that agenda because it was seen to be kind of radical, bad politics, not very kind of elite sounding. So it was really when Robert Bork um, was, Ronald Reagan tried to put Bork on the court. Bork was an outspoken opponent of Roe. And when he wasn't put on the court, his martyrdom from the standpoint of people on the right became a way for people with very differing views on abortion on the political right to, to support one another, or at least forget their differences temporarily. Um, and they did so by, by rallying around this idea that Roe was an activist decision. It was an anti-democratic decision. And that allowed them to avoid the fact that they maybe disagreed on the merits of the abortion question itself. Much as the federal the anti-abortion movement gained influence in the GOP in recent decades, the Federalist Society has as well. So initially the Federalist Society's claim to fame was really proximity to power, right? That if you were a senior member of the Federalist Society, you would get to be in the Reagan White House. That was sort of the reason people joined the Federalist Society. Over time, the Federalist Society began to call the shots when it came to judicial confirmation. So some of us have probably heard of lists of nominees that were given to the Trump administration and sort of viewed as the exclusive list available for these nominations. There were various points starting in the 2000s, significantly when George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers to the court, the Federalist 
Federalist Society essentially said, no, you know, like you don't get to decide this, we do, and this is not good enough. And of course, the person who replaced Myers was Samuel Alito, who's the author of Dobbs, who was exactly what the Federalist Society wanted. So that dynamic has changed. Um, it's still a little complicated, though. Like, if you dig down, there's the relationship between the anti-abortion movement and the federal society is now closer. But I think some of the differences between the two are now coming back to the surface because there are people in the anti-abortion movement who don't listen to the federal society. Anymore. That's that's right. Yeah. No. It's and, and of course, when one uh, latches onto a kind of rhetoric that is so strong and forceful without any kind of nuance then that actually begs the question whether individuals who consider themselves to be intellectuals or intellectual elites can stand by. I mean, can you stand by a position where a 10-year-old must be forced to become a mother mm -hmm. because that's the agenda that's being put on the table? Can you stand by an agenda where a woman needs to nearly die before her doctors can intervene in a case of a incomplete miscarriage uh, just because the the doctors, you know, have to be concerned about being prosecuted, right? I mean, so so at what point does one sort of break in and and one's integrity step to the fore? Um, a question from an audience member about what's the best message for the midterms around these topics. Um, how can racial justice be linked to abortion rights in a clear message. Very interesting question coming off of Kansas. And Sarah, I wonder if you might want to start or having, you know, what are your reflections given that voters in Kansas uh, very recently rejected the move to strip uh, from the Constitution, um, the meaning that abortion uh, is something that is a fundamental right? for the state of Kansas. Yeah, I mean, that was, um, I was surprised, um, but, or I, you know, I was a little bit surprised by that. I think that um, it's true. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because the polling, you know, shows again and again that at the end of the day, people, when you're confronted with the realities that you just described, Michelle, do support this, right? Um, and so I guess one thing I would say is that it's really also hard to de-link um, this anti-abortion movement from the anti-vote, from the movement um, against voting and voter suppression. And so, you know, Shelby versus Holder is also a case that's decided sort of in the middle of this onslaught of um, abortion restrictions being passed at the state level. And so, I mean, this isn't a prediction or a strategy suggestion, but I think just to hold in our minds the fact that voting is foundational to reproductive rights and that reproductive rights are, you know, sort of foundational to democracy and just making that link again and again, um, and the ways in which those intersect with civil rights and racial equality are also, um, you know, really again hard to disentangle. And I think one thing that comes out of this moment is a clarity um, about some of the motives and beliefs. And to your point, Michelle, it's sort of now it's time not to put up or shut up, but to sort of you know take take a stand on it. Um, and people are going to have to own the consequences of this decision. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not a, I, I don't have a political strategy. Sure. Um, I, I, I hope that I don't, I don't, I'm not a silver lining person, but I, I oh, think I'm going to be asking about a <laughs> silver lining. A, <laughs> I'm not a silver lining person, but I think that there is room now that 
the specifics of Roe are not the only thing that needs to be defended to have a much more capacious conversation about liberty and equality mm-hmm. and what we want that to look like. Well, it's it's if, important if can, that you mention that. Can I chime in on that? Sure, Deborah, I guess. Um, I, I've always said, you know, I'm a historian because I really, I, I'm not a politician and I really can't deal or don't deal so much with um, with current uh, day issues or else I'd be a political scientist. But here it is. Um, healthcare and abortion rights, I mean, are, are connected. So abortion rights are healthcare rights. And we can see this, if we're gonna save the life of a mother, we're really not just dealing with whether or not she should or could or would or um, have a right to abortion. She has a right to healthcare. And if, um, if I'm a Democrat, I'm going to go back to Obamacare and I, or, you know, and I'm going to talk about how um, healthcare was extended under the Obama administration. And I'm going to relate women's rights to healthcare and the right to adequate healthcare and the right, you know, not to necessarily, if I go, if I have to restrict my rights and because I go to a public hospital, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to insist that I have the same kind of rights that any woman or any man would have. And so equality of healthcare is related to racial rights mm-hmm. and therefore since equality and healthcare are also women's rights, that means that women's rights um, are and, and racial rights and healthcare are all bound together. But one of the really interesting things to emerge, of course, is that you know Kansas is a pretty conservative. So there are two things I think interesting about messaging that emerged in Kansas. One is that there's a, notwithstanding the story Michelle and I were telling about partisanship and abortion there, um, it's important to disaggregate partisanship and abortion. So there are people who are going to identify as independents or Republicans who don't want abortion to be illegal. The the second, so one thing I think going forward means, that means is that it may be important for people who support abortion rights to disaggregate partisan preferences from abortion by putting abortion work directly on the ballot, right? Having ballot initiatives rather than just saying, do you want a Democrat or a Republican? Because in some red states, that answer will be a Republican, even for people who don't want an abortion ban. The second thing I think is that in a post-Roe, post-Dobbs world, a lot of messaging is going to be local. So what would work, you know, in Florida, where I lived until recently, is not what would work in California, where I live now. And so I, I would also urge people to be sensitive to those differences, because I'm reasonably sure that if you imported messaging from, say, like Massachusetts, where I was working this spring, or California to Kansas, it wouldn't have worked, because people, while they supported reproductive rights and justice, thought about those things in very different ways. So um, I think, you know, all politics is local, but that's more true now, I think, than ever. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's very special out-of-studio episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank our guest and also our special collaborator, the National Women's History Museum, for helping us bring this very important discussion to life. And to you, our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and you know, telling it just like it is as usual. And it will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to Ms. Magazine and be sure to subscribe. 
Now, if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at OnTheIssues at MsMagazine.com. And we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, Allison Whalen, and joining our team, we also have Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Halland and also music by Chris J. Lee.